use of chemical weapons cannot go unchallenged. Does this mean Britain is willing to go to war in Syria? What is this war for? If British forces take part, what will they be asked to do? Is this an open-ended commitment? And what could Russia's response be? President Trump has told the Russians to stand aside because he's planning a missile attack on Syria. So is Britain about to join America in taking military action against President Bashar al-Assad's regime? Here's the Prime Minister, Theresa May. The attack that took place, the chemical weapons attack that took place on Saturday in Douma in Syria was a shocking and barbaric act. Uh, it cost the lives of many people, including young children. Now, last night at the United Nations Security Council, there was a, a resolution to enable investigations to take place. Russia vetoed that resolution. I'm appalled by that, but I'm not surprised because it mirrors what they did last year after the appalling chemical weapons attack in Khan Sheikhoun. But it does mean the United Nations, there can be no role now for investigations by the United Nations. We've been working with our allies and partners and we're rapidly reaching an understanding of what happened on the ground, all the indications are that the Syrian regime was responsible and we'll be working with our closest allies uh, to consider how we can ensure that those responsible are held to account and also how we can prevent and deter the humanitarian catastrophe uh, of the use of chemical weapons in the future. The use of chemical weapons cannot go unchallenged. Well, I'm joined by Professor Michael Clark, former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, as well as our Defence Analyst, Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. Uh, Michael Clark, what would be the purpose of an attack? Well, there's a, a number of purposes. I think the Prime Minister gave you the first one when she said we can't let the use of chemical weapons go unchallenged. That's a big issue um, because uh, chemical warfare has been effectively outlawed since the end of the First World War. And the Chemical Weapons Convention of 1993 is the most effective disarmament treaty that we've ever had. So to to sell the pass again after we've done that several times in the last few years would would be unacceptable. That's, the, that's one obvious argument. But against that, there's a broader argument about we're trying to enforce the rules of international behaviour. Beyond that, um, an attack would be part of stepping back into the Middle East issue, not just the, the anti-ISIL uh, war, which, to be honest, was a sideshow, but stepping back into the process of trying to uh, prevent the Levant from sliding into a very, very unstable situation. And I mean, last but not least, I think, and this is where the population of Syria are a bit of a long shot, I mean, if it's possible, by stepping back into this crisis in a significant way to push Assad back to the negotiating table, then this war may end in something other than a really vicious victory for the government. So there's a number of issues there, but they're quite hard to explain and they're quite hard to put into a single tabloid headline. Yeah, and Christopher Lee, to actually achieve those four objectives, what kind of attack do you need? Can it be achieved? I don't think you achieve those four objectives at all collectively. That's the first part of this thing. Um, because what happens in the first, say, 24 hours of an attack, should there be an attack, depending on what you use, um, you, you change what you might achieve further on. I mean, the purpose of what we're talking about immediately is punishment, isn't it? It's the punishment, punishing Assad for using these systems. The second part is to destroy the systems, including the delivery systems that he had. 
Uh, and there is some side of it which suggests, therefore, you might actually get to the third part because where you would, let's say, attack might be some of the systems which are right in the middle of, uh, such as Ministry of Defence, etc., right in the middle of Damascus, and you change the whole tenor of this warfare, and you could, of course you hope, is actually begin the bringing down of, of, of Assad himself. I mean, that's a long shot. But mm. first and foremost, it's punishment. And the second, it is, it is destroying the capability. Then you've done part of the job. Then you can get on with your other three ideas. In that light then, Michael Clark, what kind of, how big an attack are we talking about to actually make any difference? Because we've seen attacks before, haven't we? Mm. Yeah, and I'm for sure it's going to be bigger than last year's 59 tomahawks thrown at uh, one airbase. I mean, I suspect, obviously, I don't know, we're all guessing here, but I think it'll be a, a fairly prolonged affair going over a few days and given that we know I mean you know the element of surprise has long since gone and the Turkish forces sorry the Syrian forces have been um, putting all of their aircraft into the Russian bases and dispersing their infantry they're trying to move as much of their military facilities out of their bases their known bases they possibly can and they've had 48 hours to do it they'll probably get 72 hours I suspect an attack might go in tonight um, and so you know what does that leave well it leaves the chemical sites it leaves the fixed facilities like the runways that can be made impossible but but you've got to repeatedly visit them and most of all the, the command and control as Christopher was saying it's possible that you could take down the the, the sort of background organization the infrastructure of the Syrian military would which would cause them some real difficulties and last but not least if the Americans were prepared to be ambitious enough and we'll see it's quite risky to keep the Syrian air force bottled up inside Russian bases where they're fairly safe we're not going to attack well, they're not going to attack Russian bases, I'm pretty fairly sure, and the Syrian Air Force are safe inside those bases. But it's possible that Western air operations might, if they lasted for several days or a week or two, would effectively keep the Syrian Air Force bottled up inside those bases, and the politics, as Christopher said, of the next couple of weeks could turn around a little bit, but that's, uh, that's a bit of a long shot. You see, if you, were, if you want to stop the chlorine attacks, what you do, you knock out a few 40-gallon oil drums and a helicopter that drops 40-gallon oil drums full of chlorine. That is the fundamental thing. What happens after this, What our response is a far more uh, uh, sophisticated uh, uh, re response to that. And, you know, the, 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 uh, the take out the, the runways, 24 hours, you can, have, you can fly from them. Mm. The thing That's why is, you've got to revisit them. That's the whole point. You can't just do it once. It's yeah. day after day. Battle so, damage yeah. uh, uh, assessment the next morning yeah. sends you back in. And the other thing is, as Michael says, keep the aircraft the fixed-wing aircraft, in Russian bases, uh, and therefore all you're doing is blocking off the war for a bit. You're not solving the problem. Gentlemen, stay with us. Now, Russia says that no traces of a chemical attack were found in Douma. The World Health Organization has demanded unhindered access to the town. Well, let's talk to chemical warfare expert and former Army officer Hamish de Breton-Gordon. Uh, Hamish, tell us how you identify exactly a chemical attack. Well, critically in this case, the attack in Douma um, last week, uh, what they will be uh, looking for, because there are no detectors on the ground who actually uh, detected at the time, although we've seen a lot of the video evidence and the hospital uh, organization I support, OSIM, uh, one of their hospitals treats a lot of the casualties. So we can see at the time from the various uh, injuries that people are taking that, that these uh, um, chemical weapons um, President Macron today has said he's got uh, evidence that it was chlorine at least. I'm hearing from our people on the ground. They also think it's 
uh, sarin, uh, the nerve agent. But to get empirical evidence, you need samples out of those people who have been killed and injured uh, and will then be uh, tested and verified. That, that they're in the risk, of course, uh, although samples can be taken in Duma at the moment to get them out to the OPCW or, or to laboratories around the world and be trusted is incredibly difficult. So they're in the challenge, but the French seem to have some intelligence and I'm sure you know, probably the Brits and the Americans also have intelligence uh, to back this up. You, you talk about the difficulty of getting the evidence out to the organisation for the prohibition of chemical weapons. Is it at all possible that the Russians are right and that it wasn't the Syrian government? Can you envisage that in any circumstance? No, I couldn't at all. I've been investigating chemical weapons attacks in Syria uh, since 2012 and have been in many times myself uh, to collect the evidence. Uh, a lot of the doctors and medics who are in Duma, uh, I have personally trained. Um, so when I speak to, been speaking to them over the last week, and they tell me what's happening, uh, and putting the other pieces of, of intelligence together. Uh, and look, you know, that they, the sort of, the standard figure being used at the moment is about 50 dead and 500 injured. I expect that is an underestimation. Um, you know, even even the suggestion of the Russians or others that this is, you know, Jabhat al-Nusra or, or other groups in Duma who might be doing this, they, they wouldn't have access to that amount uh, of chemicals. Uh, and also there's very firm evidence that these were barrel bombs and uh, the pictures, although they can't be absolutely verified, mm. seem to show that they're chlorine barrel bombs and sarin barrel bombs. Uh, that we've seen before. The other the hope is that the OPCW will be allowed it into Duma, but the challenge with both chlorine and, and the nerve agent sarin, they're very non-persistent, and every day that goes past makes it less likely that the OPCW would be able to get um, evidence for off the ground. However, those samples taken from patients uh, will be viable for some time, and it's just a question of when um, the OPCW can get into Syria to do that or, or when samples can find them their way out of Syria to the laboratory that can uh, uh, testify what has been used in this attack. Hamish, we've talked many times on this programme before about the different interests in Syria. It's often very difficult to get a true picture of what's really going on because of the different objectives of the people involved. How reliable are the witnesses, the people that you talk to? Do you believe everything you're hearing? Well, I wouldn't say I believe everything I, I'm hearing, but certainly in this case, I, I think uh, I, I think it is very reliable. And uh, this modus operandi is something that the regime have used many times. Um, in Aleppo back in December 2016, we saw massive use of chlorine barrel bombs to end the, the siege of East Aleppo, and it did that, uh, forced women and children in particular off ground where they were susceptible to conventional attack, and, and that, uh, cause them uh, to uh, uh, to give up the siege. Uh, we also we also saw it in in other parts of Ghouta around December 2017 mm. and earlier on this year. And of course, that led to tens of thousands hey. of people uh, leaving Ghouta. Hamish, we've heard people saying that the way that the international community reacts to this incident may well have an impact on whether chemical, the use of chemical weapons in warfare becomes commonplace and acceptable to some, and that's what's at stake. How do you think um, the message can be put across that that is not acceptable and that it cannot continue? Well, you're right. That, that's absolutely the problem because we have not done anything 
with the over a thousand documented use of chemical weapons in Syria uh, since 2013. They have proliferated around the world. And of course, we, we've seen military grade nerve agent Novichok used in Salisbury and the OPCW has verified the British results a few hours ago on that. Um, so it is key that the international community makes a stand, reimposes the red line on the use of chemical weapons and reimposes the taboo, which did last for a hundred years uh, from the First World War. Otherwise, we're going to see this widespread. And I think a particular concern as, as, as the Cold War heats up with Russia, um, if Russia has uh, these uh, particularly deadly nerve agents, uh, Novichoks, and would use them in a in in a confrontation with the West. You know, at the moment we would find you know we would be in, we would be challenged um, to to mitigate that because those particular uh, nerve agents are designed to overmatch NATO's chemical weapon defence capability. So it's critical that the international community uh, makes a stand to ensure that the red line on chemical weapon use is reimposed. All right, Hamish de Bretton-Gordon, thank you for your time today. Now, do the Americans really need British military support over Syria? Let's talk to Simon Marks from Feature Story News in Washington. Uh, Simon, what's the president been tweeting today exactly? Has he changed his attitude? Well, 24 hours is a long time uh, on Donald Trump's Twitter feed at the very least, Kate. I mean, as you know, uh, yesterday morning over breakfast, he was tweeting that Russia needed to brace itself because US missiles, nice and neat and smart, would soon be raining down uh, on Syria. That after the Russians, of course, threatened to shoot down any US missile that was heading in the direction of Syria. Uh, but this morning, he appears to have had a bit of a rethink. He said on Twitter, never said when an attack on Syria would take place could be very soon or not so soon at all mm. in any event the United States under my administration has done a great job of ridding the region of ISIS where is our thank you America question mark so that's his current state of mind which follows a, a lengthy series of meetings at the White House with his top military advisors including of course Defense Secretary James Mattis who yesterday was certainly sounding substantially less gung-ho about the prospects of a military strike on Syria than the president that he serves. And Simon, how do Americans see French and British military contributions? Do they say the prospect of it is, is, is tokenism? Uh, well, they haven't said very much about either of those things publicly, but I think there's no question that any president of the United States would like to have uh, the active support of allies in launching a military strike uh, on Syria, and Donald Trump in that regard would be no different. Tokenism or a real meaningful uh, contribution to any kind uh, of action, and with Emmanuel Macron saying that he now has uh, proof that this was indeed a chemical weapon strike on the eastern city of Douma, uh, perhaps the United States will be looking to France uh, for more assistance than it might seek from the UK. But Donald Trump, like all presidents before him, would like to be in a position to say that he's got allies lined up behind any military action that he takes. The timing of all of this remains deeply dubious and perhaps not entirely separated from the domestic political problems that Donald Trump faces over Robert Mueller's Russia probe. It's worth, I think, perhaps remembering that this weekend the former director of the FBI, James Comey, publishes his book and <laughs> kicks it off with a big TV interview on Sunday. If you were Donald Trump and you wanted to change the national conversation, you might have that night in mind. Oh, Simon, you're such a cynic, aren't you? Um, <laughs> what are the American people saying? Do, do they want to go to war? 
Look, I, I think this is a, a confounding moment, uh, particularly for those people who supported uh, President Donald Trump because they voted for him, many of them, in part because he said that he would not deepen American military entanglements in far-off places about which they knew little and cared even less. I think foreign policy idealists here in Washington, D.C. Uh, and out on the West Coast of the United States say, look, finally there's an American president who isn't just drawing red lines and and then ignoring them, there's an American president who's willing to follow through, willing to go to the mat and take on uh, the gas-killing animal that he now calls Bashar al-Assad over the use of chemical weapons. But uh, look, this is not without political risk for Donald Trump, particularly with some of his core supporters who are dubious about the idea of engaging in Syria just one week after President Trump himself surprised his military advisers by saying, let's bring all the troops home. Hmm. All right, Simon Marks in Washington, thank you for joining us. Uh, Professor Michael Clark, the former Director General of the Royal United Services Institute, has joined us today, and our defence analyst Christopher Lee is here in the studio as well. Michael Clark, uh, does America really need British forces? Uh, not in a military sense. Um, there's nothing that we've got that they haven't got themselves. and We can add some useful um, elements. Um, but the, the need is, is uh, as we just said in, the, in your correspondence uh, report, um, it's political. The, the, the bigger the coalition that the American can seem to command, the, the better. But if you then say to me, well, what do you think we might offer... I imagine it would be um, an astute or Trafalgar-class submarine firing Tomahawk cruise missiles, um, GR-4s that we've got in Cyprus with Storm Shadow, which is the air launch cruise missile, and then the River Joint Sentinel aircraft for battlefield control, and probably the most the thing that we can be a bit more unique on, I would suspect, is uh, intelligence. I mean, what our intelligence is saying about where the sites are that we would be most interested in, and maybe, I'm guessing now totally, but maybe special forces on the ground who can act as forward air controllers. That might be a bit of a stretch, since our special forces are doing lots of other things, but those are the sorts of, of assets that I think we would commit to this operation if it takes place. So how would any military alliance with America work? Laura Makin-Isherwood has been speaking to the US ambassador to NATO, Kay Bailey Hutchinson. I think it is more uh, a, a time when our countries should come together to do something. It will not be a NATO mission. It would be uh, a voluntary alliance of those who believe that we should not let this heinous crime uh, stand. We can't have, um, in our sphere, and particularly because we know that Russia is very aligned with President Assad, and that they could be stepping up and doing something to address this issue as well, and they're not. Tensions are obviously quite high, aren't they, between Russia and the West right now. Mm -hmm. If there was intervention from the West, say for instance military intervention, would that increase the chances of further conflict from Russia, do you think? I think we have to speak very firmly with Russia. When they take actions that are against the norms of civilized behavior, uh, I think we need to stand up as the West and say, no, you have gone too far. Uh, that's what so many of our countries have done uh, because of the attack right here in UK uh, in Salisbury. That is unacceptable conduct, using a nerve agent that's only made in Russia uh, to uh, attack and try to kill 
uh, people who are now a, a man who is a citizen of UK. And uh, we've got to stop, we've got to draw the line, and the line is being drawn as we speak. So what does that mean, though? What, how can we stop this happening again? What action will be taken against Russian because, Russia? Sorry, because people say, you know, this is the final line. But what does that actually mean? I think that's a very good question because it's hard. We have put in sanctions. We have expelled Russian uh, spies that we know are not diplomats. They are unregistered agents. Um, We've taken those steps, and even our country has gone after oligarchs who are benefiting from this bad behavior. What do we do now? I think we continue to try to bring Russia into the understanding that they must stop the kind of actions that they are doing. And they're uh, working with Assad. They could put pressure on him to not use chemical weapons killing school children and women and innocent civilians in his country. And to have a, a country like Russia that could do something and isn't needs to be addressed. So we are beginning to look at other ways that we would be able to, um, to say to Russia and to Syria, stop attacking your own people with chemical weapons. It's beyond what most of us can comprehend as reasonable. But if you toppled Assad, if more sanctions were put in place, if the country was subjected to military action, could the removal of Assad actually make way for other problems within that country? What would they be? And how do you uh, counteract that problem? How do you impose you know, that kind of uh, reprimand on Assad without causing greater issues? Well, I, I think we don't know how this could turn out and if there would be others who would come forward that would care about a Syrian country that is good for its people. But I think that is something that goes to Geneva. We support a Geneva solution where all the parties that have a stake in Syria are a part of that process. Assad should not be part of that process. He has shown that he cannot lead Syria in a way that gives his people a quality of life. So if you take all of the warring factions and have a neutral uh, venue for them to uh, come together on an agreement for uh, a Syria that would accommodate all of its people, uh, and everyone would agree to that without Assad at the helm, that would be the ultimate right solution. You're in the UK, obviously, to meet with our current Chief of Defence Staff, uh, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stuart Peach, before he takes up his new role at NATO. What do you think will he be his top priorities when he joins? Yes, we're very uh, pleased that Air Marshal Peach is going to be uh, taking over the reins as chairman of the military committee. He would. He comes very highly recommended by our uh, military allies. And he is going to be facing the missions that we have in NATO now, most certainly Afghanistan. We're trying to increase our uh, activities in Afghanistan of training and advising the Afghan troops to protect themselves. And they're doing that. And I think we need to assure that we stay with Afghanistan so that they can have a credible peace that will last. 
that will be good for all of us in the European North Atlantic uh, Alliance because we want them to have a stabilized country so that they will not have terrorists fomenting that then come into our country. So it is in all of our interests that this happened. And of course, the chairman of our military committee will be facing that. And um, we are also looking at the possibility of a mission in Iraq for training and advising the new Iraq and the police forces and the armed forces that will be needed to do a good job to stabilize Iraq after the defeat of ISIS. That was the U.S. ambassador to NATO, Kay Bailey Hutchinson. So what might Russia do if there's an attack by Western allies on Syria? One response could be the first major use of cyber warfare. Director of GCHQ Jeremy Fleming has been speaking at a cybersecurity conference in Manchester. The Russian government is widely using its cyber capability. Whether that's not Petya against Ukraine's financial, energy and government sectors, which eventually spread across the world, or the use of industrial-scale disinformation to sway public opinion. They're not playing to the same rules. They're blurring the boundaries between criminal and state activity. And they're not alone. We've seen state-sponsored hackers conducting cyber attacks to avoid sanctions. The release of WannaCry by North Korea cyber actors last year is a great example of that. And the head of the UK Cybersecurity Centre, Kieran Martin, has told Forces News that a Category 1 attack is expected. It's a major priority for us to be as ready as we can be. We expect, as you say, a Category 1 attack. That's a serious national incident affecting critical services and possible risk to life. It's our job at the National Cybersecurity Centre to make sure we've got the right incident response for that. That's why, as the Home Secretary said yesterday, we're committed to a series of major exercises. It's why we talk constantly to partners such as the National Crime Agency, the other intelligence services, policing throughout the UK, and of course, Defence and the Armed Forces about how we'd handle that attack. We always want to improve our readiness for a Category 1 cybersecurity incident. Well, Professor Michael Clark, former Director General of RUSI, is still with us. Uh, Michael Clark, what would be a Category 1 attack? Uh, that would be one that uh, tries to um, f- uh, take down some of our infrastructure, something that is, ba- is attacking the critical national infrastructure. Now, you could say, well, you know, National Health Service, the WannaCry uh, attack from last year was part of it. That was, a, that was sort of accidentally done in a way. The health Service wasn't the, the main target. But if there was a target, say, on uh, targeted the, I don't know, the railway systems or air traffic control or energy... Uh, or distribution, those are critical national infrastructural nodes, and that would ca- class as a Category 1 attack, mm. as opposed to something that tried to you know, get inside one of the banks and cause a bit of chaos to people with accounts. That would not be a Category 1. Christopher Lee, and we've heard the Defence Secretary talking about this kind of thing, saying it could cost lives. What kind of procedures are in place should something bring down the hospitals, for example? If you're going to bring it down a hospital, the one thing you can actually do is stop people getting to the hospitals. And so uh, quite often you've got two counties working together for the ambulance services. Uh, and, and you get into that and you foul up the communications between that. You actually um, put the lights out. 
literally just sim- something as simple as putting the lights out and, and, and changing the sequences that are automated sequences that so much of British society now exists. Now, I've been talking to some people at uh, two of the oil companies, oil delivery companies, and they say they can actually, if you hit the right buttons, you can close down the United Kingdom in three days. You, you won't get oil to petrol stations. Uh, you won't get oils to places like Canvey Island, where the something like sort of forty percent of the southeast, and that's twenty five percent of the country, uh, get their heating oils from. And you do that in the winter. But you imagine how the, the society reacts. And what you're trying to do is to get society to react to these difficulties, and society gets into a pandemonium so so so, so very easily. It's quite frightening when you think of that pandemonium. Michael Clark, how much does it worry you, the potential for the, the effects of this kind of attack, briefly? It, it, a little bit, um, but I think uh, when we start moving into other areas of competition, uh, then I think we are on dangerous ground. I think the Russians might dabble with this, but again, with deterrence by denial. If we show that we're up to it and prepared for it, they will not persist And ha- how too up much. to it are we? We're better than most. I mean, all, all societies societies are widely wide open these days but we're in better shape than most others okay and there we'll have to leave it for this week do check out our video on forces news facebook page and send us your comments or you can tweet us at bfbs sit rep and never miss an episode by subscribing to this show as a podcast a thank you to all of our guests today and to professor michael clark the former director general of the royal united services institute from me kate chabot it's time to go bye-bye for now of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. Louisa May is warned.